Hey, it's Asma here on the road from Columbus to Cleveland. Just want to remind you, if you haven't yet, to give the NPR One app a try. You can use it to listen to NPR and all of your favorite podcasts, like this one. And as you listen, it listens back to help you find more of what you like. Get NPR One on your app store now. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. We'll talk about Donald Trump's rough week, new details about Trump University, and scrutiny over Trump's donations to veterans groups. We will also cover the next big batch of primary states on Tuesday when Hillary Clinton could lock up the nomination. Or not, depending on who you ask. And VP picks, we will speculate. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. All right, let's begin with a certain university that was in the news this week. Domenico? Well, Trump University, which is not really a university. Not accredited. (laughs) Uh, Not degree granting. No, they had to actually change their name. uh, Really? Because the New York State Department of Education said that they were not licensed to train or teach students. They were not accredited to be a university. So they had to change. And they did. They said that they wouldn't do business as a university in New York State yeah. and wound up incorporating in Delaware. And so, now it's all done, but it's back in the news. And we should back up we to say the what, what it was. Case, so, yeah. you know, Donald Trump started talking about Trump University and the multiple lawsuits that are ongoing for fraud against the university from people who are saying that what they signed up for is not what they got. And it cost too much. It cost too much. So part of what what the university or what the school what really resembled more like uh, real estate seminars. And what they would do is they'd send emails out, try to get people in the door, and they would go to these 90-minute free seminars, right, which is probably a lesson anytime you see something's a free seminar. It's not just about helping you become better mm-hmm. at whatever the topic <laughs> is. Okay? Pro tip. Yeah. So what they did there was they referred often in the in these documents that were released uh, on Tuesday, you were able to see, the court-ordered release, by the way, you were able to see that there was a hard sell that a lot of the people who worked for Trump, Trump associates who went and tried to get these uh, folks who came in the door, who they referred to as buyers, not, not students often, <laughs> most of what they referred to them as, as buyers, was to say, okay, uh, you're here. We're going to help you get your feet wet in real estate. You might not know how to do this. We're going to have several speakers who are, quote, handpicked by Donald Trump. They were referred to as top instructors of Donald Trump's. Top there were scripts to say that each of these people were uh, mentors to whoever was introducing them, every single one of them. Uh, Trump admitted in a deposition in December during the campaign, by the way, that we didn't know about until The Washington Post reported on it uh, recently, that he said that he didn't really know a lot of these folks or vaguely remembered their names or the name sounded familiar. But his name was on the whole enterprise. The whole thing was branded and marketed out after the Donald Trump name, out of his success, uh, success on The Apprentice, all of the songs that play, the song that played before every speaker took the stage was the soundtrack from The Apprentice. Stop it! Yeah, money, 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 was, money, and, money. And, and, oh my and, goodness! And they mandated down to the detail what the temperature of the room should be: sixty-eight degrees, never right? above sixty-eight <laughs> degrees. Uh, they, everything had to be ironed. Uh, all the banners. Yeah. They even language on how to talk to people if they want to come in yeah. early. Yeah. So all of these. Documents are back in the news this week because of this case in Southern California, and a judge released these. Talk about what happened with that. Judge Gonzalo Curiel from San Diego uh, ordered these released for public interest and ordered them unsealed. And Trump 
when he found out that was going to happen, went on something of a tirade against this judge. He said that the judge was a hater. But I have a judge who is a hater of Donald Trump. A hater. Said it twice. He's a hater. Three times. Yep. His name is Gonzalo Curiel. He notes that he's appointed by Obama. Ah. The judge was appointed by Barack Obama, federal judge. Uh, and he referred to him as Mexican. The judge, who happens to be, we believe, Mexican, which is great. I think that's fine. You know what? I think the Mexicans are going to end up loving Donald Trump when I give all these jobs, okay? I think they're going to end up. So for the I record, he love. is not Mexican. He's from right. Indiana, He right? was born in Indiana. So he's of Mexican ancestry. Right. right. Yes. But everyone's so, of some kind of ancestry. Right. This judge was born in Indiana. Uh, which is part of the United States, mm-hmm. which is, as it turns out. Some people would consider more part of the United States than New York, but whatever. Um, and he went to Indiana University Law School. Anyway, regardless of all that, what the documents that were then unsealed and released on Tuesday revealed were really these high pressure sales tactics where you're trying to get people in the door, get them to buy one of these three packages. You get them into the 90 minute seminar, get them to a $1,500 weekend, and then try to get you to show your credit card information, show your credit card statements. Or even take out new credit cards to pay for it, right? And they create their own little lingo to explain how people will pay the tuition. I have the sales script in front of me. Can you read some key lines? Yeah, well, this is what really stuck out to me. Our goal is to teach you how to acquire property using creative financing with little to no money down, also known as OPM. And OPM stands for Other People's Money. And it goes on to explain, you may have heard that strategy. Many students who are invited aboard this program use established lines of credit, like a credit card, utilizing the bank's money, OPM, <laughs> to handle their tuition. A credit card ain't OPM. You got to pay that back. But th- that's, this is part of the answer about tuition. When someone asks you about tuition, you tell wow. them to use OPM. Uh, Domenico, there was one line that really stuck out for me and for you from this whole document dump this week. It was a sales pitch line that folks were told to give. Yeah. Right? Now, this this was when you're trying to get people to give your credit card information over so that you could review whether or not they had enough money, in oh, fact, to goodness. buy one of the plans. If you said, you know, look, I, I'm not real comfortable with this. You know, I, I don't think I can afford that. They said, well, let's check out your credit card information. Show me your statements. This way we can determine where we can work with you. And if you objected on that, they'd say something like, look, Sam, if you want to be terrific, you got to be specific. And it was it went on. <laughs> That was in the script. That was in the script. So so my question, the bigger question with all of this is, does this stick? Can Democrats make Trump University into something larger, like they made Bain Capital for Mitt Romney into something larger about him being a ruthless capitalist? I saw a lot of effort over this week of of, uh, Clinton people and other Democrats to say Donald Trump is a fraud, to say Trump University is a fraud and Donald Trump is selling the American people a line of goods just like with his university. Do they make that stick? Right. Well, this is a thing Domenico and I have been talking about quite a bit is that they do seem to be using the Mitt Romney or the the playbook that Barack Obama used against Mitt Romney back in 2012 is saying this person is not like you or me. He is not a regular Joe. Uh, And not only that, but he's, you know, he's trying to pull one over on you. And if they can weave together all of these Donald Trump anecdotes, for example, the bit about, well, you know, I could make money off of a housing crash and that sort of thing. If you can weave that in, I think that's what really can sell people. Have we sort, of seen... like, sort of like happened with Romney with the 47 percent video. Once again, that that really played made... into the narrative they were trying to. Exactly. And I will just say that the idea here that Democrats 
are, you know, they haven't been able to really dig in on something where they can say Donald Trump, you know, is nefarious, his business practices, because everyone knows the Trump name. It's ubiquitous, right? You know who he is. You see him on TV. But this gives the most specific information yet that Democrats can try to use and are already trying to use to say that he's someone who takes advantage of average people. We should say that the Trump campaign fired back hard on this. In addition, in addition to Donald Trump talking about how he feels the judge was a hater, they've also noted that there are plenty of positive reviews, that there were testimonials from people who went through the program and said good things. They even released a video showing three people who went through the program and said that they've actually done quite well and wouldn't have had the chance to do so without these things. And one of the people in that video is this woman who other reporters have uh, dug up has appeared in multiple testimonial videos, being a testimonial <laughs> yeah. person yeah. for various other motivational speaking, one-on-one training. Oh, other things beyond Trump yeah. University. Oh, yes. wow. Uh, so, another possibly bad news for Trump this week. Um, Trump had to talk about some donations he did or did not give to veterans groups. Uh, this is in relation to a veterans event he had back in January. Who wants to catch us up on that? I Go gotcha. Ahead, okay, so this all dates back to January, right, where... Donald Trump, if you remember, he skipped a debate. It was on the Fox News channel. He said, no, I'm not going. Instead, I'm going to hold a fundraiser for veterans. And at said fundraiser, he said he had raised $6 million and that that included $1 million of his own money. All right. Flash forward to last week where David Farenthold at the Washington Post reported that uh, he had talked to Corey Lewandowski. Corey Lewandowski had told him, well... Campaign manager. Yes. For Donald Trump. Trump. Right. Corey Lewandowski, Donald Trump's campaign manager, who had said that in fact it was around $4.5 million. And the Post at that time had been digging into this and had found $3.1 million. Now, it could have been more than that. They said it could be at least... It's what they were able to verify. Right. That's what they were able, able to verify. So that wasn't a definitive total. Then the Washington Post just kept digging. And on May 24th, on the same day that the Post interviewed him, Trump also donated $1 million to something called the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. So, so he didn't give this money until he was called out on it. That's what it, what people are saying seems to be the case. And it's like causation rather than correlation. Right. Well, when and you look so, at the timing, I mean, the timing is what's interesting. I mean, Barbara Sprunt, who works for us here on the Washington Desk, a researcher here, went and called all 41 of the charities that Donald Trump said he donated to. She got 31 of them to respond and 30 of them confirmed that Trump had donated, uh, that the foundation had donated to them some $4.3 million. And the timing, though, what Danielle was getting at, the idea of when this money was donated, 1.9 million of it, almost half of that money was donated just in the past week and a half or so, including that million dollar check from Trump. So Tuesday, Trump had this press conference to talk about the veteran story, and he wanted to outline and specify all of the groups that he had given money to. American Hero Adventures, $100,000. Americans for Equal Living, $100,000. But because Trump and the media, this was also full of really tense moments between Trump and the journalists there, like this one. I'm not looking for credit, but what I don't want is when I raise millions of dollars, have people say, like this sleazy guy right over here from ABC, he's a sleaze in my book, you're a sleaze because you know the facts and you know the facts well. Go ahead. 
so that's Tommy Yamas from ABC and uh, Trump calling him a sleaze. Yamas talking back and saying, well, how am I a sleaze? Look, here's the thing, right? If you say that you raised $6 million for veterans and you say that multiple times and then your campaign manager says you raised $4.5 million and uh, independent news organizations can't verify what the amounts are, the press is going to ask questions. They're and that's say, their job. Right. And it's not, it's not from what I think he's misinterpreting is it's not from like a position where we have a conclusion already made in our heads. They just want to know. We just want to know, but, like, where did the money go? Did you raise that amount? Is that what actually happened? But I think that Trump leaves this situation, as in with lots of others, where there's enough room and wiggle room for him to come out on top because he still gave millions of dollars. At the end of the he day, still, he still gave a million but, bucks, right? And, like, he can say, again, the press has attacked me. They've attacked me. They've attacked me. Well, yeah, the remarkable thing is... There was a press conference where Donald Trump was supposed to answer to why he hadn't given money to veterans that he had claimed he had given to veterans. And instead, a big part of the news cycle ended up being Donald Trump feuds with the press. Um, But uh, you want to talk about bad relationships with the press. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton, who hasn't had a formal press conference since December 4th. Right. Wow. wow. Right. But now, she does do interviews, and that would be her defense. She's like, why do I need to do press conferences when I can do interviews with reporters I want to talk to? Right. But that's like her Rebecca media Trisha. strategy. If she wanted to be a real counterweight to Donald Trump and show herself to be a different kind of candidate, then she could hold a press conference, and I bet you it'd be covered because she doesn't hold that many. All right. We're going to talk about the Democrats and next Tuesday's big primary votes right after this quick break. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Casper. They're an online retailer for mattresses. Casper mattresses are American made and obsessively engineered for comfort. They use two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, to give just the right amount of sink and bounce. And they have a risk-free trial. You can try out your Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and returns. It's outrageous comfort at a polite price. So go to casper.com slash NPR politics to check out their options. And they have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Use the promo code NPRPOLITICS to redeem $50 towards a Casper mattress that works for you. Terms and conditions apply. All right, before we get to this big foreign policy speech Hillary Clinton gave Thursday afternoon, let's talk about June 7th. Tuesday, we have primaries in six states, including California. So what is the latest on California and why is California so important. Well, California, frankly, to the numbers might not be all that important, but it's important for Hillary Clinton to be able to put away Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders has been beating her in a lot of states recently. It's not going to change the math. She's going to be the nominee unless something crazy happens. And that doesn't mean losing California. She's going to cross, by the way, the number she needs to become the nominee when polls close at eight o'clock for New Jersey, because the way proportional allocation works at poll close time when New Jersey votes, she's going to have already made up some ground in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, which will give her quite a lot of delegates, frankly, and she'll just need a few delegates to go over the top uh, when polls close in New Jersey. Okay, so I have gotten a tweet that I get tweeted at me at least five times a day, probably. You do too, Domenico. And I I feel like we should answer this question because we get it so often. Uh, This person writes and says, do you think that it is factual to report that Hillary Clinton is the nominee, presumptive nominee, based on superdelegate commitments before superdelegates vote? I feel like you're trolling me now because I get, (laughs) this is the kind of question I get all the time. And I don't get them in the 
form of a question, actually. But I do get that I'm misleading people to say that she's going to be the nominee uh, when she crosses because we're including superdelegates and superdelegates don't vote until July at the convention. Now, we'll say this, though. These superdelegates are people who have come out and publicly declared for either candidate. If they were to change their declaration, then we would say otherwise and we'd add that to the total. But never before have we actually tracked pledge delegates the way we track them this year. And we're doing that because the Sanders folks had such a deficit with superdelegates early on that they had an argument that if he won the pledged majority, that superdelegates could switch. That's very unlikely this time. Okay, but the question that I have here is, like you said earlier, by the time polls close in New Jersey, it is likely that Hillary Clinton will have crossed the... Cross cross that finish line. Sure. So after even if Bernie Sanders does win California, which is possible after Tuesday night, what does Bernie Sanders do up until the convention? Like what what could his game plan be? This is what I keep wondering. So he said that he's going to stick in it till the convention. Right. He's announced a few events. There's a big progressive conference mid-June that he will probably be at. But he's going to be around and he's going to be making the case that he should have some big influence on platform there and on. I'm and sorry. he's going to have so a, he's going to have a big say if he if he wins California and has won a lot of these other states. So California is nothing to sneeze at when it comes to Democrats. And California is a big spiritual victory. Should he oh, get it? Sure, absolutely. So in other words, he's pushing for influence, or is he actually trying to get superdelegates to still come over? I'm to- hearing it's about both. They want to win. They think that they can win if they can win over superdelegates to say that look, we still lead Donald Trump in the polls by more than Hillary Clinton does. Why won't you vote for Bernie Sanders? You should, and they'll make the argument then to superdelegates that you should go the way the states went, which would lower her total but still put her in the lead. Mm. And then they'll finally try to make that sale that you should put him over the top because he's winning in places that Democrats like need. California. And so much of and. It feels like Bernie knows that California means so much. His campaign strategy these last few weeks, it's been California all in. He's refusing to leave the state. He is he's moving in. Literally. It's a lovely state. It, it is. Really but like is. he's been there for the last week. He's not leaving until like Tuesday. Like he's just doing that, right? And he is going, you know, it's not just San Francisco and Los Angeles and Oakland rallies. Now it's Fairfield and Visalia and uh, Modesto. I saw him in Stockton a few weeks ago. Right. Yeah. So side note, two things going on this afternoon, Thursday, as we tape. First, Paul Ryan, one Speaker of the House, said today that he will vote for Trump. And it was an endorsement, yes or no? Yes, it was. It, lots of people have said, lots of people have said, I will vote for my party's nominee, but I'm not endorsing that person. Well, in this case, this is an endorsement. Uh, his uh, chief press secretary says, in fact, Paul Ryan is endorsing Donald Trump after what has been this long courtship situation. But did Ryan say the word endorsement? His spoke, a couple of his spokesmen made it clear on Twitter. They said, we're not playing word games here. You can call it an endorsement. So by Trump getting the endorsement of the most powerful GOP lawmaker in the country, does that mean that he has fully won the establishment now? This is a big is. get. Although I, I would point out, so he did this in, I believe, is the Janesville Gazette, uh, Paul Ryan's hometown newspaper. He has a column on their website that you can go check out uh, where he's explaining his uh, endorsement, we can call it, and What's interesting is that he really leans on, uh, he's Paul Ryan, he is a policy wonk, he does lean on his own ideas in this. He's saying, you know, we in the House, in Congress, are going to craft lots of policies, we're going to show that we can do X, Y, Z for the economy, and we want a Republican in the White House 
who can sign those ideas. And so he does admit, he acknowledges towards the bottom of the column, listen, Donald Trump and I, we have had our differences. And we've all watched those differences play out over the last few months. You don't but, say. Right, exactly. And so he does acknowledge that. He acknowledges, you know, this friction. But he says, you know what, I'm voting for him anyway. But here's the amazing thing. This endorsement comes out, oh, five, ten minutes into Hillary Clinton's big foreign policy speech that she's giving where she is just ripping into Donald Trump. And then, poof, there's news. And it's positive for Donald Trump in the middle of her speech. That's a speech uh, that Hillary Clinton gave this afternoon in San Diego. Attacking Trump, we got a supercut. Donald Trump's ideas aren't just different. They are dangerously incoherent. They're not even really ideas, just a series of bizarre rants, personal feuds, and outright lies. Because it's not hard to imagine Donald Trump leading us into a war just because somebody got under his very thin skin. He says he doesn't have to listen to our generals or admirals, our ambassadors and other high officials because he has, quote, a very good brain. We all know the tools Donald Trump brings to the table, bragging, mocking, composing nasty tweets, I'm willing to bet he's writing a few right now. And he actually was, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So Hillary Clinton, we know, is trying to run, look, to the right of Barack Obama and to the left as what she sees as a non-starter, irrational foreign policy in Donald Trump. And the real challenge for Hillary Clinton, foreign policy for Hillary Clinton is like a blessing and a curse because she has all of this experience. She was secretary of state. She was in the Senate. The problem is she voted to authorize the use of military force that led to the Iraq war. And it starts making you have to talk about the two big scandals uh, that she's had to run on that conservatives have hit her on, which was her private email server that she kept in her house. While she was secretary of state (laughs) because she in the administration was seen as one of the strongest advocates for going into Libya, uh, intervening in Libya. And President Obama just yesterday said that. Libya was one of his greatest regrets on foreign policy as president. Speaking of Barack Obama, he is getting back in the mix this week, right? Absolutely. I feel like, I mean, I guess there's some argument that uh, a previous speech he gave was really his first campaign speech of 2016, a Rutgers graduation speech. But I think the speech that he gave Wednesday in Elkhart, Indiana where he spiked the football on the economy Hmm. and really went after Donald Trump, though not technically by name. I think that was his first campaign speech of 2016. Roll that tape. The primary story that Republicans have been telling about the economy is not supported by the facts. It's just not. They, They repeat it a lot, but it's not supported by the facts. But they say it anyway. Now, why is that? It's because it has worked to get them votes, at least at the congressional level. Because, and, and, and here, look, I'm, I'm just being blunt with you. By telling hardworking middle class families that the reason they're getting squeezed is because of some moochers at the bottom of the income ladder because of minorities or because of immigrants or because of public employees or because of feminists or because of because because poor folks who aren't willing to work 
They've been able to promote policies that protect powerful special interests and those who are at the very top of the economic pyramid. That's just the truth. You can see him starting I, to I test out some of these uh, lines. This is like spring training or it's like an early set for a comedian. Seems like right. he's not all the way back to like stadium level Obama of 08 yet. Will we see him go there at some point before November? He's likely to be able to get bigger crowds than Hillary Clinton. Oy, well, right. But Hillary Clinton's going to have someone like Barack Obama try to get out the Obama coalition. And you're going to see someone like Elizabeth Warren and maybe Bernie Sanders, if he gets behind her, to be campaigning to try to win over the left. Right. I think and, you, and you have Elizabeth Warren and Obama as two very different but potentially powerful surrogates in this sense. First of all, you have Elizabeth Warren, who is seen as a champion of the left, a champion of the working person, a fierce attacker of Wall Street. And she is able to get out there. And she has really, really been lambasting Donald Trump in her very strident way. Obama does it from his own uh, his own sort of that incredulous thing he does yeah, where he right. says, <laughs> like, where, Come on. yeah, where he sense. says, yeah. this is actually their policy. <laughs> Are you kidding? Like he does that over and over. It's very stand up comedy. And that right. Obama's saying, by the way, here's my economic record. Yeah. And it's no secret that Hillary Clinton is very much running on running sort of on the Obama trajectory. As yep. much as anything, his legacy is at stake in this election. He can't imagine. Imagine the guy who led the birther charge against Barack Obama to delegitimize him, him turning the keys over to to Donald Trump to be president of the United States. Barack Obama has a lot invested in making sure Hillary Clinton wins, as doing as much as he can to make it happen. So before we go to listener mail and can't let it go, Danielle, you have a big piece this week that you put together all about vice presidents and what goes into picking them. For those who haven't read it yet, and they should, Describe it to them. Right. So basically, I start from the point of, you know, there's this idea that a presidential candidate is going to choose a vice presidential candidate based on, you know, swing state. That if I am a smart candidate, I'm going to pick a running mate from Ohio, you know, or Florida or Virginia or one of these states that's considered purple and can swing easily. As it turns out, um, I've talked to someone who has studied this and uh, looked at a couple of studies, and there is a fair amount of evidence that your running mate being from a swing state really doesn't help you all that much. Not only that, but presidential candidates don't seem to even pick swing state uh, people all of that, all that much. Interestingly, the person I did talk to about this, the researcher said there's one election that he and his partner could identify where a vice presidential candidate would have changed it, and it was... 2000. Uh. Because it was so close. Yes, because it was so close. The and asterisk election. Right, where Al Gore uh, chose Joe Lieberman. Of course, Joe Lieberman was from Connecticut. Connecticut is reliably blue. Uh, whereas he had considered Jean Shaheen. How am I, am I yeah, Jean Shaheen. She's the senator from New Hampshire. Right, which was the only northeastern state that went Republican that year. No one is going to think about picking a VP for four electoral votes, though. I'll tell you that. Uh, well, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, no, and it's hard to right. It's hard to fault Al Gore for this, but it's just to say that there maybe is a minuscule amount of help that it might provide. And there is uh, one recent study that kind of casts a little doubt on this. To be fair. But yeah, but you know what it really looks like is people look for some other sort of balance. If you're like, if you're a governor from if you're a former governor from Massachusetts, like Mitt Romney, you're going to pick someone with a bit more Washington insideriness, like perhaps Paul Ryan. Uh huh. You know, someone you, who can help him legislate. Right. Someone who can be a liaison to Capitol Hill, who can sort of co-legislate with you, like Domenico said. So there's a lot of different other sorts of balancing they do. Likewise, geographic. There is a certain amount of geographic uh, thought that goes into it. But it's not clear how much it helps. So knowing that, can you make any predictions about what Trump and Clinton might be looking for when they pick? I mean, I imagine Trump as a, you know, as the ultimate outsider. Yeah, he could try to pick someone with a lot of 
uh, experience in Washington. In fact, at the time that I reported this, predicted an online prediction market. Uh, predicted that he would pick Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House. And they've been talking. Apparently, yeah. Um, but, I mean, however, who on earth knows there's a lot more speculation. Uh, but For Hil- Clinton? Uh, for Clinton, I mean, it's a little bit tougher. I mean, Washington insiders, as Hillary Clinton undoubtedly is, often they have room to pick someone who's more of an outsider. They don't always do it. But uh, people have been talking about Tim Kaine for her, who, of course, is governor of... Virginia. Yes. Uh, sorry. He's senator who, of course, from Virginia. Oh, sorry. Senator. Yes. Former governor. Well, he is a for- Yeah. Everybody's yeah. a former governor of Virginia. <laughs> right. A former governor of Virginia and a senator. I mean... It's tougher to see on her side. I mean, she, uh, but she has a wide variety of experience to pick from. Some people are saying Secretary of Labor Tom Perez. Uh, and if you look at if you look at uh, the past Clinton precedent where they doubled down on having someone from the South and someone kind of like him, you might look at somebody like Perez because they might try to double down on somebody who's got the same kind of wonkishness. Double down on nerdiness. But also it's about chemistry. I think you can't underestimate chemistry. Like Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan had chemistry. It was like a dad and son kind of thing going on. No, it really, they seemed like buddies. They really did. Yeah. And they same with Joe Biden and Barack Obama, right? Exactly. Yeah. The bottom line, though, Body is that comedy. people people like to play this game, but no one votes on the vice president. They vote on who the top of the ticket but is. But what right. about this... this time, what if Hillary Clinton picks a Latino? That might be symbolic for some voters, right? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it is also true, and this is is that people do still tend to vote based on party. I mean, I looked into this when I was ta- writing about, you know, the quote-unquote women's card earlier this year, that... Just because you have Hillary Clinton, for example, at the top of a ticket doesn't mean, you know, you're going to have an influx of Republican and independent women just flocking to her. And likewise, I don't know if you can count on that if you have a Hispanic on the ticket that suddenly all of the Hispanics who wouldn't have otherwise voted for her would suddenly vote for her, if you know what I mean. All right. Quick break. We'll be right back with listener mail and can't let it go. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, Go to learnvest.com slash nprpolitics. Okay, let's hit the mailbag. Reminder to email us your questions or feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. And to rate the show on iTunes if you like it. That helps other folks find it. Okay, so Matt emailed us to ask, what's your favorite reporter food? That one thing that keeps you going when you're being called sleaze. Yeah. <laughs> Ramen, Chex Mix, pizza, etc. Domenico, you have to run back to the newsroom for a second, so you go first here. I hate to even admit this because I think I've gained the 16 in 2016, but uh, <laughs> I think the thing that I go to sometimes, it's just the worst thing. It's like the most toxic, but like cheese doodles. Like Wait, I really like, like not cheese Cheetos. Doodles. No, like cheese doodles. I don't yeah, know. Is that that what is that? I don't know. They're That's like a weird che- name. they're like che- well, Cheetos are more the, the cheese sort puffs? of fluffy. No, cheese cheese puffs and Cheetos are more the like sort of fluffy ones that sort of melt in your mouth a little bit more. The cheese doodles have the crunch. Neither have real cheese. <laughs> no, they don't have cheese, and they're terrible for you. <laughs> they and turn your you feel, fingers orange. You feel bad after eating them. They turn like, your soul But they're orange. so good, though. Mm, they, yeah. they are good. Yeah. Okay, Domenico, you have to leave, but you'll be back. Now you go. Okay, I'll go. Bye, Domenico. Bye, Domenico. All right. Um, so, Tamara, what's your secret food pleasure? 
it's not so secret because every producer at NPR knows that on election night, the best way to make Tamara Keith very, very happy is to acquire a large quantity of Sour Patch Kids. Or gummy bears, right? And gummy bears and Swedish fish. I just need a heavy infusion of sugar. How does your dentist feel about this? I actually need a crown and a cavity filled right now, but I haven't had time. (laughs) Sorry for asking that question. Wait, you've been putting off dental care for the election? Yes. Oh. Take care of yourself. This is how committed we are, people. No, but but take care of yourself. Because usually I end up, if I have a crown, then I need a root canal, and I don't really have time for a root canal right now. Anybody got time for that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's your food, Danielle? Um, I, my body is like leeching preservatives out of it because I have been eating, uh, so many of those frozen meals at my desk, uh. like, because like, I don't, I don't even want to go down to the cafe. I don't want to go out and buy, like, it's here. It's fine. It's you your know. sad solo desk lunch. Yes, it is. Um, and actually it's still delicious. Danielle, I can't even, I can't even be sad about it. I'm saying this now, at least one day a week when I'm in town, you and I are going to have a real lunch break, go downstairs and eat as people together over fresh food and talk in the cafeteria i am so happy the, the listeners week, can't see me smiling lunch. now this is great I'm real a... lunch yes okay all right sam so my thing is actually a liquid mm. let me explain um the favorite part of all of my trips when i'm on the trail is when you get the okay to go home it's like when you know that you're done and you've like finished the assignment and you're free so Tam, as you know, when you're on the trail, until it's all the way done, there's this constant state of nervousness Mm -hmm. about hitting the deadline, doing it right, getting this, getting that. Updating. Exactly. But once I file that last story, I'll call my editor and say, am I good? And she'll say, okay, you're good. And without fail, whenever I get to the airport and everything has been done and I'm waiting for the flight, I order at some airport bar a dirty martini. Mm. (laughs) And I'll tell you what. Airports can be this strangely meditative, quiet, restful place. Like, I'm sitting there. I'm having my drink. I get to see this rush of humanity going to and fro. And I just feel like, huh, I am at peace with my place in this large rush of everything. (laughs) In the midst of this crazy election and all these folks going to and fro, I can have a moment and be at peace. Yeah, Like those 15 minutes. And I just eat the leftover Sour Patch Kids from the night before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Another letter, Andrew emailed us a seemingly simple-sounding question. Why did Hillary lose to Obama in 2008, yet beat Bernie in 2016? Now, seemingly beat, it's not done yet, right? Well, Barack Obama is not Bernie Sanders, or more to the point, Bernie Sanders is not Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, well, there was this talk that, that Sanders could duplicate the Obama coalition. That didn't quite happen. And that coalition is? That coalition is African-Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans and young people. And the key thing being young people. And Mm -hmm. white people. Yes, Mm -hmm. liberal white people. So what ended up happening this time around is that it sort of split. And Bernie Sanders, he got the young people. He got some share of the liberal white people. And young people of color, too. And some, yes, and some share of young people of color. And Hillary Clinton got older people, wealthier people, and absolutely African Americans. And so she got enough of the Obama coalition to win. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, and like a million other things. Yes. Right. And and let's be clear that uh, Obama versus Hillary uh versus Bernie versus Hillary. Those are two very different matchups. I mean, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were it's safe to say uh, quite a bit closer policy-wise. Uh Bernie Sanders is much for running much further to the left than Barack Obama was in 2008. So people are also sorting based on that. Yeah. 
Uh, finally, Susie from Chicago wrote, subject line, more reading for a white girl. She writes, quote, I am interested in reading more about race and politics and wondering if there are specific articles or books you would recommend. Not a very savvy online news gatherer, I'm embarrassed to admit most articles I read are ones which have been tagged by my friends on Facebook. I would love to have your help in taking myself out of the friend bubble. So I would first refer um, Susie to the recent politics podcast all about race and whiteness. We talked with Gene Demby of our Code Twitch team about how race and whiteness is going to play out in this election. Uh, on that note, everything Gene writes about race is great. Code Switch is a constant source of good stuff. Um, do you guys have some books recommended? And they have a podcast now, yes, too. Yes, the Code Switch the Podcast. Switch podcast it's very good. Which yeah. we recommend. Yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend a couple of just straight-up uh, numbers ebooks, but they're good for understanding what Republicans and Democrats need to do in this election. One is called The Next America. It's from the Pew Research Center. It's by a guy named Paul Taylor. Really, it's an encyclopedia of numbers and different topics and different demographic groups. Uh, aside from that, there is also... Uh, 2016 and Beyond, which uh, I have been digging deep into these days. It's by a guy named Whit Ayers, who is a Republican pollster, uh, but he wrote it about the demographic challenges facing the Republican Party coming into 2016. And he leans very heavily, especially into uh, the fast-growing Hispanic demographic. Danielle, be reading. And be reading. I would vote for The Big Sort, which okay. is a book all about how we have basically sorted ourselves into little groups where we are surrounded by people that agree with us. Yeah. You know, my tip for thinking about talking about reading about race more is to understand and acknowledge and look for the people that are already in your life that you're not talking about race with. I think that a lot of times we're just loathe to talk about it, even with friends. Like sharing the article is not having the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So I would urge you, Susie, to find ways to begin these talks with folks you already know without, you know, being heavy handed with it. Like, You'd be surprised by how many of these talks you can have with folks you already know if you go into it with an open mind. Yeah. All right, that's the mail, and we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. Hey, Asma here again with a podcast recommendation for you. NPR's Latino USA. Host Maria Hinojosa has interviews with artists, immigrants, and others who are changing the American political, social, and creative landscape. Find Latino USA now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. All right, we are back. It's time for Can't Let It Go. Domenico has rejoined us, and we're all going to share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Domenico, what can you not let go this week? So one of the things that really I can't let go is the fact that I feel like people keep having this sense that the primary was the same as what's going to be happening mm -hmm. in the general election. And it's totally different. Some 20 million people voted in the primary. Not everyone was paying attention. The general election, you know, you can have over 140 million probably vote in, yeah. the, in the general. You know, and, and specifically, I think what I'm getting at here is a, kind of a collective shrug from a lot of people in the media who will say, well, you know, all this stuff from Hillary Clinton and her emails, we've poured over it for a year, you know, what's really new there. And then when it comes to Donald Trump, it's like, well, you know, why should we look into a lot of what's happening uh, now that's things that have come out like Trump University or even uh, the uh, database of lawsuits that a couple of news organizations have looked into because they sit there and say, well, you know, none of this stuff that had 
had hit Donald Trump early on really stuck in a primary. But part of that is because for so long it seemed the media moved day to day based on what he said that was outrageous and didn't devote, it seemed, the time in, or resources to do some deep digs on his record. In right? this campaign, yes. as opposed to what had happened in the past or past interviews or past statements or business record. Really, his business record has not gotten a ton of scrutiny. But are you saying that people aren't going to do that? It seems to me like the vetting has begun. But think, shouldn't it have begun earlier? Is well, question, I, I don't guess, know. Right? I think the vetting has begun, but I, I wonder about you know how intensely and how strongly uh, people are really trying to dig in at, because because there's a sense that, well, you know, it didn't stick in the primary. Um, Tam? Trumpkins. What are Trump Trumpkins? Pumpkins? <laughs> Trump pumpkins? Exactly. It's why why that why is that happening? It's not even in, October. Yeah. yeah. So well, because it takes time. That's why. To so, grow a Trumpkin. To grow a Trumpkin. So <laughs> there is a Kickstarter campaign that a listener to the podcast sent to us. Thank you, listener to the podcast. Um and they are kickstarting these molds that you would like put around a baby pumpkin and then it grows into a Big pumpkin in the shape of <laughs> in the shape of Donald Trump's face. You can buy your own pumpkin directly from us, or if you've got a little bit of land and you want to grow your own, we can send you a pumpkin pumpkin forming mold and all the information you need. You will win Halloween so much you will get bored of winning Halloween, <laughs> probably around the first week in November. My but question: then, How we'll big is this Trump mold, and how big are these are these pumpkins going to be? Right, are these like little baby gourds? You know, little little. No, these are full size pumpkins. So I don't, I don't think I understand. Are they supposed to like grow into the shape of Trump? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. Is that the, the idea? They, they're as they grow, the little baby pumpkin is inside the mold, and it just it can't it can't expand it, into pumpkin shape. I don't think that's how like it works. We'll find out <laughs> by November. <laughs> I guess my thing is like, couldn't someone? See this as kind of inhumane to a growing pumpkin. Shouldn't pumpkins well, be allowed not to grow free? That's They're a... not human. Oh yeah, yeah. But the thing I really can't let go is that this all just makes me think about sexy Trump Halloween costumes. Oh, oh God, no. Donna T. Rump shaker. <laughs> Woo. Whoa. Okay, we got it. Hat and wig not included. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Uh, All right, Danielle, what can you not let go? All right, this is the definition of not being able to let anything go because this is an update on an old can't let it go from months ago. (laughs) Is that a first? (laughs) The city of St. Paul, everybody. Oh, trash, baby, trash. The city of St. Paul does not have city trash pickup. Instead, it has 14 different companies that run around the city or drive around the city uh, to pick up your trash. If whatever block you live on, you ideally, uh, is the way that neighborhoods seem to say, you call up your neighbors, you see who they use, you get in on that company as well. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you have one guy who picks up your trash. Sometimes the people who live down the street have another company that does it. So the city of St. Paul, the city council is considering a plan to totally overhaul this. And I read ah. this in a Minnesota public radio story, in fact. Uh, but Shout out. Yeah. They're, they're going to consider making it all one like, thing. They're considering something that is not just straight up city garbage pickup. Oh. They're considering a sort of co-op plan where the garbage collectors all get together. <laughs> co-op and, garbage collection. And decide. Compost plan. And sp- no, no, no. And split oh. up uh, split up the city themselves. So that way there's less overlapping uh, because it's not, you know, it's you not know just this... inconvenient. It's, you know, it's hard on infrastructure. If you have a whole bunch of big, heavy garbage trucks driving down your alley every day, you've got to repave the alley over and over again. That sort of thing. Sam, what can you not let go of? 
It is a listener letter, actually, that literally has been making my day every day for the last week or so. And this whole week, it has been in my mind, on my heart, making me smile. comes from James Perelman. Um, And I'm going to read some of it just because it's so good. And we're going to have a little soundtrack to go with it. This is all about a comment I made last week. Uh, I was making some analogy or metaphor about something. And I mentioned that Mariah Carey isn't the singer now that she was years ago. Which I think is true. (laughs) Yeah, no. But James Perelman says, Dear Sam Sanders, I've been a huge fan of NPR's Politics Podcast. However, you made an erroneous statement this week that just cannot go without correcting. That statement was regarding singer-songwriter, two-time Diamond album holder Mariah Carey. James then goes on to bring the facts and bring the receipts and bring the documents. He sends me multiple links of Mariah Carey singing very well recently. We're playing one right now. It's her singing a cover of Against All Odds in Glasgow in March. This guy went deep. He is committed. Deep cuts. I'm going to read the last graph because that's where it just gets perfect. He says, I and the rest of the politically interested Lamely, that's Mariah Carey's word for her fans. She calls them lambs, so they're part of the Lamely. Like Lamb family. as in man. Yes, that's what she calls her fans. Anyway, <laughs> she's, he says, You were correct that her first three albums are vocal perfection. However, Daydream and Butterfly are her best albums. That is not an opinion. It is just a gay scientific fact. Always and still a fan, James Perelman. James, I give you a slow clap for the best listener mail I have ever received we in get this a podcast. Lot. We I know. Get a lot. Yeah. This, it was deeply recent. Me and Susan was... Davis ended up hashtagging gay scientific fact. Like, it's just so beautiful. (laughs) I couldn't let it go. That's all. All right, that's a wrap. We will see you Wednesday morning with a recap of Tuesday night's big primary votes. And as always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Please, please, please do us a favor and rate the show on iTunes if you like it. And find us on Twitter if you want to talk. Or email us your questions at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I'm a digital political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you, Lamely, for listening to the NPR Politics <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>